This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. We're looking at uh, 2762 through 2815. While you're turning there, I want to encourage you to return tonight. As we look at Jeremiah, Jeremiah faces off with the prophet Hananiah. Two men, both claiming to speak for the Lord with two very different messages and how are the people to know who to listen to. And for that matter, how will we know when we hear conflicting messages, both claiming to be the message of God, both claiming to be biblical? How are we to gauge those and measure those and determine which is true and which is not? We'll be looking at that tonight, so I hope you'll join us at 6 p.m. This morning, however, it's going to feel a lot like Easter in November. Uh, we're looking at the resurrection of Christ, and that's okay because, as you know, uh, we celebrate the resurrection on Easter, but the very fact we're meeting on Sunday morning and not Saturday morning is because of the resurrection of Christ. So every Sunday is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday in that sense. So it's always appropriate, of course, to look at the resurrection of Christ, just as it's always appropriate to talk about the suffering and death of Christ, because those two things are at the very heart of our faith and what we are about. So this morning we're looking at Matthew 27, beginning in verse 62. Hear the word of God. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. 
And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this part of your word. We praise you, Lord, that it is truth itself. We praise you for the wonderful message that it bears to us this morning and pray for your spirit to guide us as we study it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The 16th century church reformer Martin Luther once said the doctrine of justification by faith is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Well, we could sort of borrow Luther's formula there and say that in a similar way, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is the event on which Christianity stands or falls. Of course, we're not the first to say that. Paul said that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. A great passage we're familiar with where Paul talks about the resurrection at length. But in verse 14 of that passage, he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is futile and your faith is in vain. Christ is not raised, then there's nothing to see here and we might as well move along. All four Gospels, in fact the whole Bible, asserts that Jesus was physically, bodily, in time and space history, the clock running, uh, resurrected from the dead. That he came out of the tomb, he was in, and that that tomb is empty. Well, we're not going to look at all four Gospels. Uh, it would be interesting to compare the different details, the different perspectives they give together. But we're looking, looking of course, at Matthew's account as we continue in our series in, in Matthew And as we study Matthew's account of the resurrection, it's interesting the way he presents it with, uh, in the first few verses, the Jewish efforts to prevent and then later to discredit the resurrection, serving as bookends around the event of the resurrection itself. So let's take a look here at this tomb of Jesus and what happens surrounding it. Well, first of all, we see here that the secured tomb meant that human tampering was ruled out. The secured tomb meant that any human tampering with the body of Jesus was ruled out. We see this in verses 62 through 66. The next day, Matthew says, that is after the day of preparation. Preparation for what? Well, preparation for the Sabbath. Uh, Friday, after the day of preparation. It's interesting that Matthew doesn't even note that this took place, this request took place on the Sabbath day, that is Saturday, for them, Uh, maybe because he didn't want to associate the Sabbath with these kind of shenanigans that were taking place on that day. So he sort of refers to it in a roundabout way, the day after the day of preparation. So this would be Saturday. It was the Sabbath. Chief priests and the Pharisees come to Pilate again. Of course, they've come to him trying to have Jesus executed. Now they come to him with another concern. Maybe they've been talking among themselves, and they say, well, we remember how this imposter, this deceiver, that's how they refer to Jesus, said, I will 
rise after three days. Interesting that they would remember those words. Because the disciples didn't seem to. The disciples didn't seem to have any such expectations. But these Jewish leaders remember that Jesus had claimed that he would rise on the third day. How would they have heard that? Well, could have been any number of occasions where they might have heard Jesus say it. In fact, Jesus does speak to them, it seems, about it, although in an indirect way, when they ask for a sign. And he says, no sign will be given you but the sign of Jonah. You know, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights and would rise. Maybe it was that they were thinking of. But certainly word had gotten around town, just from Jesus' claims, as the grapevine was in operation, that there was this idea he would be raised on the third day. And as they started thinking about that, they started thinking, well, wait a minute. You know, what if his disciples come and steal away the body and claim that he's raised from the dead? You know, then, then that second deception of his resurrection would be even worse than the first of his, of his whole ministry. Now, I think this is, this is the case of uh, a principle in Proverbs at work. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1. I've thought a lot about this proverb because it's true, and anybody who's ever dealt with a guilty conscience knows it's true. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing. The second half is the righteous are as bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing. Why? Because they're afraid they're going to get caught, right? They've got a guilty conscience, so they're looking over their shoulder. They're wondering if anybody knows. They're, they're interpreting every, every facial expression, every word to say, ooh, you know, they're on to me. They may catch me. may be totally innocent. Their guilty conscience makes them feel like they're being pursued. There may have been a little bit of that going on here. I don't know if they felt guilty over what had happened. Uh, they certainly wanted to prevent a resurrection. His disciples could come and steal the body. But if you stop and think about it, Maybe they didn't realize this, but from our standpoint, we saw how much in disarray the disciples of Jesus were after he was arrested. They fled. They were terrified. They were scattered. They were in no condition to mount some effort to come steal the body and then try to perpetuate uh, some idea, some fraud that Jesus had been raised. They simply were in no condition to try to do something like that. And you also have to ask, would they have even wanted to do something like that? What were they thinking during this time that Jesus was dead and away from them? Were they feeling betrayed by Jesus themselves? Were they feeling crushing disappointment that they'd been uh, investing three years of their lives with this and it seems to have come to nothing? They may have had very ambivalent feelings about Jesus themselves at this point. We don't know. It's, the Bible's silent on that. But it seems highly unlikely that the fear of these Jewish leaders would ever be realized, and yet that was their fear, that somehow the disciples would steal the body and spread this story that uh, Jesus was raised from the dead. And so that's their concern. And now they go to Pilate to ask for help. They ask him uh, to help prevent this, to make the tomb secure until the third day so that this doesn't happen. And Pilate grants them what they want. You have a guard of soldiers. Give you these soldiers. Now you go with these soldiers and make that tomb as secure as you possibly can. So that's exactly what they do. They go and they set a seal on the stone so that it can, they can tell if it's been broken or not. 
uh, if it's been opened or not. And they also put this guard of soldiers outside the tomb to guard the tomb so that there can be no possibility of a scam of a fraud being pulled off in this way. But you see, they didn't know what they were doing. Even in their efforts to prevent this from happening, they set the stage for an argument to make it humanly impossible for Jesus' body to have been removed from the tomb. They themselves secure the truth of the resurrection of Christ because in their efforts, they rule out any possibility of human tampering with the body of Jesus. It has become a human impossibility for anything to happen to the body of Jesus in that tomb. And so unwittingly, they actually help to confirm the reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead by ruling out any human tampering with the body. So that's the first thing that Matthew tells us about here. The secured tomb meant human tampering is ruled out. Second thing Matthew tells us about the tomb, the empty tomb, meant that Jesus was, in fact, alive. You could interpret an empty tomb in any number of ways, but with this first thing that took place, the setting of a seal and a guard, and now the fact that the tomb is empty meant that Jesus himself has to be raised from the dead. He is, in fact, alive. Well, we begin in 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, uh, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, this would be Sunday morning, the Jewish reckoning of three days would include was inclusive. It would be Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You know, we might say Friday to Saturday is one day, Saturday to Sunday is a second day, Sunday to Monday is a third day. And so we say, well, why didn't Jesus rise on, on Monday? It was only two days. Well, the Jewish reckoning and the reckoning Jesus was working by was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days. It encompasses at least part of three days. So it was the third day. Uh, the dawn of the, after his crucifixion, the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. They go, uh, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now, we read in other gospel accounts, Luke particularly tells us, the women were concerned about how they were going to open the tomb, what they were going to do with this, this stone, how were they going to roll that back. Well, that was taken care of for them. Uh, as they get there, and this angel has rolled back the stone, and it's, it's not so much an obstacle for him as something to sit on. Uh, there's an angel there. Now, you may know uh, Luke does record, uh, I believe Matthew records, their, or Mark records their concern of the stone. Luke records that there was this angel, but there was a second angel there. There were two angels there. We say, well, is this a contradiction? Well, no. Uh, if there were two angels, then obviously there was at least one angel. I was thinking about that and thinking, well, here's an illustration. Uh, suppose earlier in the service, um, somebody said, well, Mike and Alan were up on the platform. That's two people. Two people were up on the platform. And then somebody else says, well, well, the, the pastor got up and, and made the announcements. You say, well, wait a minute, there were two people, and then you just talk about one person. Well, because there were two, there was one. Because both of us were up here, Mike was up here, and Mike made the announcements. So if you just said, pastor made the announcements, and then somebody else said, well, Mike and Alan were on the platform. It's not a contradiction. It's just singling out the one who was doing the talking at the time. And I think that's what's going on here. Apparently, there were two angels, but there's one specifically who interacts, kind of the spokesman here, and Matthew simply focuses on that one because the important thing ultimately is not the message, but is uh, the angel. 
but this message, which is what the word angel in Greek means, messenger, uh, and the important thing is his message. And so the women came and they find the tomb open and they find this, this angelic, glorious being, face like lightning, clothing like snow, uh, simply trying to describe his radiance, uh, is there. And the guards are there too, but they're, they seem to be in this catatonic state for fear of these beings that have come and uh, are there. And, of course, the women would be frightened, too, but the angel responds, as is so often the case when people encounter this angelic visitation. The first thing they say is, don't be afraid. And actually, the emphasis on you seems to be that the angel recognizes, you know, these these soldiers are scared stiff, literally. The women are afraid, and the emphasis seems to be, don't you be afraid. You know, we may be enemies of these soldiers, but we're not your enemies. We're your friends. Uh, don't you be afraid, too, seems to be the, the emphasis here. Uh, don't be afraid, the angel says, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Um, the angel says, I know why you've come. I know what you're doing here. Uh, but he is not here. Uh, the, he, he has risen, as he said. Now, three significant statements. One, he's not here. This tomb is empty. Nothing to see here. He has risen. Uh, the reason he is not here is because he is alive and someone living has no business being in a tomb. As he said, you sense just the slightest, slightest bit of, uh, of a rebuke there. You know, what are you doing here? He is alive just like he told you he would be alive. And the angel seems to speak for Jesus just as in a few minutes that Jesus seems to, or does say the same thing that the angel said. Uh, the angel is is sort of expressing Jesus' sense of having to repeat things with the disciples. You know, as I've told you, told you. Well, he has risen as he said he would. In fulfillment of his promise, in fulfillment of his prophecy, he has risen from the dead. So three significant things in these few short words. The tomb is empty, Jesus is alive, and it happened exactly as he said to you it would happen. This is Matthew seems to delight in showing fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament he also likes showing that what Jesus says comes to pass, to emphasize that we can count on what Jesus has said. Because what Jesus says is always true. It's always right. That's true for the entire Bible, not just those words in red in your Bibles, but the whole Bible. But certainly when Jesus says something, you can count on it. When he promises that he will return a second time, though that hasn't happened yet, everything else Jesus said has come true, has been fulfilled, and so why would we not count on that as well? And so that's the message. He's not here. And then he says something else. He invites them to come, see the place where he lay. remember talking, uh, it may have been this Easter, uh, about Thomas, doubting Thomas. You know, Jesus appears before Thomas. He says, come and put your, put your fingers in the wounds in my hand, and your hand in this wound in my side. And Thomas seems to decline to do that. He's convinced but Christianity has always had a come and investigate, come and check this out mentality. And that's what the angel says here. You can come into the tomb and see for yourself that Jesus isn't here. Now, we've, we've never been afraid to invite investigation. We have nothing to hide. We believe that the truth claims of the Bible will stand up under the most careful and even critical scrutiny. And that's exactly the posture of the angel here. Come, 
See the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. And he will meet you there. He gives them a message to take to the disciples and encourage them to go on to Galilee where Jesus would meet them. Uh, and the angel finishes by saying, see, I've told you. So he basically says, I've handed this off to you. I've done what I was sent to do, and the rest is now up to you. And that's the end of their interaction with the angel. They depart quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Fear because they've just encountered this overwhelmingly magnificent supernatural being who wouldn't be afraid, but also great joy because of the message that they've heard, which probably hasn't yet really sunk in. And maybe they're only starting to believe that it might possibly be true and yet there's that joy there combined with that fear of their interaction with this, this magnificent being. And as they're going, Jesus meets them and says to them, greetings. If only there was some good way to capture what Jesus actually says to them, probably the closest thing would be something like shalom. The word that Matthew uses of what Jesus said here is a word that has to do, it literally is rejoice. But like shalom, which means peace in a very full sense, as a greeting, it's using the word joy or rejoice as a way of greeting. So greeting is, is accurate, but it just sounds very wooden to us. But when Jesus greets them, he uses a word that has the idea of joy, rejoice, by way of greeting them. Uh, be glad or something like that. Uh, and they came up and they took hold of his feet, signifying that Jesus was physically there, not just a vision that's just a, a, a figment of their imagination. They grab his feet and they worship him. It's not just that they're glad to see him. I mean, when you see a friend you haven't seen for a long time, or when you see a friend you saw recently but were afraid something horrible had happened to them, you, know, you may hug them. You may not want to let them go. Maybe your child or husband or wife or something. But you don't worship them. Well, they worship Jesus. They ascribe full deity to him, and they just get down on their faces at his feet, and they worship him. What does Jesus do about it? Nothing. He receives it. You know, when I read that, I was reminded of John and the angel in, in Revelation chapter 19, where uh, the, the angel is speaking to John, and John falls down at the feet of this angel and begins to worship this angel. And the angel, you know, kind of jumps back and says, don't do that. I'm just a servant of God like you are. Worship God. Well, it struck me as somewhat humorous. You know, the angel's revulsion, this, this man is worshiping him. And certainly uh, that would be an inclination uh, because he's a glorious being, but he's not God. Nothing like that happens here. Jesus doesn't say, well, don't worship me. Worship God. Because Jesus is God. And that worship is entirely appropriate and it is accepted. And he repeats the angel's message. Don't be afraid. Wouldn't you be afraid if you just saw a man that uh, three days later you saw die a gruesome death? And here he was, and that'd be a little scary too. Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Notice the angel says, tell his disciples. Jesus says, tell my brothers. Tell my brothers. These were the men who had just run from him, the men who had just abandoned him, even who had denied him. And Jesus says, tell my brothers. Go to Galilee, and they will meet me there. See the grace in that. And so the empty tomb means that Jesus is, in fact, alive. And, in fact, 
the empty tomb, together with the many witnesses, these women and the disciples and others, Paul mentions, who saw Jesus alive, corroborates that witness. So the secured tomb means that human tampering is ruled out. The empty tomb means that Jesus is, in fact, alive. But then Matthew has a little more to say about it here. The explained tomb, and I put explained in quotation marks. If you're taking notes, you can put that in quotation marks, explained. The explained tomb meant it means that people will do anything to avoid the truth of the reality of Jesus' resurrection. The explained tomb, the explained away tomb, means people will do anything to avoid confronting the reality of Jesus' resurrection. The women take off on their mission but the guards have something else to do. Some of the guard, not all of them, this is some of them. You wonder what the others were doing. Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Jerusalem, we have a problem. Um, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, what do they do? They buy off the guard. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, and it must have been a pretty impressive amount of money to get these soldiers to give the story, tell the story, that these leaders wanted them to tell, which basically involved a couple of things. One, saying they'd fallen asleep on their post, which Roman officials would not look very kindly upon. In fact, it could be an executable crime for them to fall asleep on duty. But that's what they were to say. We fell asleep, and while we were sleeping, his disciples came and stole away the body. How would they know? You ever had one of your children tattletale on the other? Mom, he had his eyes open during the blessing. And you say, well, how would you know? And they say, oh. How did they know? Well, we were asleep, and while we were asleep, the disciples came and stole the body. How did they know it was the disciples? How did they know he was stolen at all? Well, see, the story is self-contradictory, but they're in a bind. The last thing they could do is go out and tell the truth. Well, this angel showed up. And he opened the tomb, and Jesus came out, and people are going, okay, right. So they're willing to put their necks out there and say, we fell asleep, and while we were asleep, the disciples came and stole the body. Now, do you not see this immense irony here? That the very thing the Jews were trying to prevent in the first verses we looked at is the very story that they tell the soldiers to spread in, the, in this last part of the story. After doing everything they can to make that impossibility, then they tell the soldiers, well, say you fell asleep and say that's precisely what happened. Lame, lame, lame. But it's the best they can do. And they have to pay the, the, the soldiers a sufficient amount of money to get them to say this because it is so lame and because they are risking their necks. But then they also come back and say, well, you know, if the governor hears about this, we'll satisfy him, we'll keep you out of trouble. If they don't, they lose cover. If they do buy into this, accept the bribe, give the story, then at least they've got some friends in high places who say, we'll do our best to cover for you and see that you don't have anything to worry about. And Matthew notes, this story has been spread among the Jews. There's no article in as he wrote it. This story has been spread among Jews to this day, which by Matthew's time of writing this would be 20, 30 years later. And in fact, uh, we have record of that, that same uh, story being circulated on into the second century, the 100s, that this was what happened. You know, so you start with them doing everything they can to make that an impossibility, 
You end with them spreading that very same story, despite how impossible it would have been, because that's all they had left in their effort to discredit an empty tomb. But in all of this, does it ever occur to you that the Jewish leaders knew what happened? The soldiers knew what happened? Uh, They may not have been able to explain everything. They knew that the tomb was empty, and they had to come up with an explanation for it. And they had to come up with this lame story rather than acknowledge the truth that Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to do and came out of the grave. They knew the truth, or at least something close to it, and did everything they could to suppress it, to discredit it, to spread which, uh, that which was actually a lie, a deception, and a fairly lame one at that that collapses under scrutiny. Not the last effort to discredit the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Perhaps you've heard of the swoon theory that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He merely fainted uh, and uh, resuscitated in the tomb. Somehow was able in his weakened condition to get that large stone out of the way and come out. Well, that one's hardly worth the telling. It falls apart almost in the telling of it. The ladies went to the wrong tomb. But I would remind you last week we looked at... uh, the uh, at verses 60 and 61, where uh, Joseph of Arimathea takes Jesus' body, puts it in his own tomb, and Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, were there watching as Jesus was put into Joseph's tomb. Uh, give them some credit; they had gone to the right tomb. They knew where Jesus was. They knew where his body had been placed. That falls. The symbolic resurrection. Well, Jesus didn't bodily rise from the dead, but a symbolic thing of new life, you know, and the new life we have as we believe in Jesus. I would simply refer you back to 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not raised, then our preaching is pointless and your faith is in vain. Uh, that's the hiding place of people who don't believe in the resurrection, but also know that if the church collapses, their job is on the line, and so they keep this thing going even though they don't believe in the resurrection themselves. It's unbelief in the pulpits of the churches. Uh, maybe in the pews and seminaries as well. Uh, symbolic resurrection. Uh, if, if, if Jesus' resurrection was merely symbolic, then your salvation is merely symbolic too, and it means nothing more than that. Or that the church made the whole thing up, basically the story that was circulated among the Jews. Well, produce the body. You know, if the disciples had done that, all they'd have to do is produce a dead body and prove them wrong. Where's the body? There's no body. Body's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Jesus' resurrection is well attested. Many witnesses who, uh, who saw him and the change that took place in the disciples to preach the gospel of a risen Christ, even at peril and sometimes at cost of their lives. Why would they do that if they were merely making the whole thing Jesus is, in fact, alive despite their best efforts to prevent it, despite their best efforts to discredit it. The resurrection is a historical fact upon which Christianity stands. Now, for the Christian, this is good news. It means that when Christ was on that cross, he died bearing your sins. And his resurrection means that the Father accepted that payment, that atonement for your sin, and that your sins have been paid for. In your case, death has been defeated. It has been conquered. Christ died for you, and he was raised to new life for you, which affects not just your eternity, but now. As Paul says in Romans 6, you died with him by your union to him and the Holy Spirit and have been raised to a new life 
in him, which is why Christianity is more than just try harder. It is be who you are in a resurrected Christ. You've been raised to life with him. This is good news for the Christian. It means our salvation is secure. Bad news for the non-Christian, because it means that everything Jesus said is true. It vindicates every claim, every promise, every teaching that Jesus made. Bad news for the non-Christian is that this risen man is not your savior. He is your judge. And he's alive, despite the best efforts to get rid of him. But even in that, there's good news, because the judge has declared that this is a day of clemency. This is a day of amnesty for those who will submit to him, trust in him in faith, receive him as their savior and as their king, and receive the salvation that he died and was raised to accomplish. You see, this judge, this savior, says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened, all you who are weary of running from God, all you who are tired of being so heavily burdened with the guilt and the power of sin in your life, come to me, he says, I will give you rest. That comes from a man who died, but who was raised on the third day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ there is rest. Thank you, Lord, that this resurrection means that his death is valid, that he died as the lamb, the substitute. Father, thank you that he died for us. Father, thank you that he was raised for us and that we, too, are raised to new life in him now. We'll be with you when we die. And, Lord, even our bodies will be raised up, glorified, imperishable, incorruptible like his on that day when he comes back, just as he said he would. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.